Uh, good morning, Redemption Church. So I was thinking, um, I don't know about you and your world, but I know in mine, there have been these strategic moments in life where my perspectives on God or faith or whatever, they just kind of leveled up in really bold ways. And I remember one of those, I was 25 years old. I was just about six months in to being a lead pastor for the first time in my life. At 25 in that position, I knew everything. I was the smartest guy in the room. I had all the answers, right? Because when you're 25, you're brilliant. And then you just become wise over the course of time and you realize you're not so brilliant. But one of the big level ups for me was uh, 25 June, this was 1996, God brought into our lives our first child, right? So our sweet little honor, Carlene, was born, and it was in that space that suddenly I had this whole new understanding of God as a father, Right? So up to that point, it was all theoretical. I knew exactly how I was going to raise a child, what I was going to do. But when you suddenly have this child in your arms, you, you, you see something about the character of God, the heart of God, the fatherliness of God that shows both the blessing of being a father, but also the burden of that job, right? That there's all this heartfeltness, but you also know there's going to be a lot of heartbreak in the process. And yet in that mix, you have this desire for this child. You want to raise them in such a way, not that they're perfect, but that they're always trying to grow, to develop, and to adapt, to be, uh, you know, like community-minded, to be a, a person of conviction, of compassion, and ultimately of Christ-likeness, right? That's the burden of the parent as they raise a child. And when I think about that, I can't help but think about John in this letter that we're studying through right now, the, the book of First John, or the letter of John, this blog of his, because what he's doing in that space is he is seeking to display a fatherly heart to a set of children. In fact, he keeps using that language throughout his blog, right? He's like, you are dear children, beloved children, little children. He loves the terminology, and I believe it's because what he has by way of proxy is he has the heart of God the Father kind of flowing through his life as a spiritual father to these spiritual kids. And he wants their very best. He wants them to grow to be everything they're ever meant to be. He wants to inspire them to greatness. And he wants to give them just a really high bar to shoot for. Now, what I believe in this is that he knows that, you know what? Um, they're not going to fully do it. He knows that we're not going to fully do it. But he uses words for them to try to live up to their potential. And as we're going to see today, he uses very extreme language sometimes for this. Right? But that's kind of the way of things. Sometimes if you want to get somebody's attention, if you want them to go as hard as they can, you want to use the most extreme term, terminology so people go, yes, I'm going to lean forward. I'm going to chase after that. That's what I want to achieve in life. I believe that's John's motivation this morning. And so we're going to dive into a section that, as you will see, very, very inspiring and incredibly challenging at times, even to the point of like head scratching and trying to figure it out and go, I don't know what to do with this. So we're going to try to navigate what we do with some of this. And so as we get underway, I want to remind you, we have an app and the app, there are notes, there's blanks, you can follow along, but I want to go ahead and pray for us this morning because there's a lot we're covering in a rapid amount of time. And uh, again, we have a lot to try to touch base on and hopefully make sense of. And so if you would pray with me right now, that would be fantastic. Jesus, we are coming to you 
And we are asking that you would lay in our hearts that message that you have for us, that wisdom you have for us, and that inspiration you have for us. And that we would take that and run with that. And, and as we'll see today, there are things that your word says that we struggle with, we wrestle through. We, we don't even have always the best answers for maybe some of what it's trying to tell us, but we know the heart that you have toward us. And so I pray that we will sense that heart, that we will move on those things, and that we will rely on you. As we learned last week, we will abide in you because you've anointed us to really hear your voice in our lives and live that out. And so, Jesus, we thank you, we praise you, we seek you this morning in your good name. Amen. So today we are in 1 John chapter 3, and if I was to simplify this chapter over this week and then in two weeks, because next week is Easter, bring a friend, it's going to be awesome and everything else. We're not going to be in 1 John next week because we're celebrating Easter. But if I was to take this chapter and simplify it, I think John is trying to deal with one question that has two distinctly different kinds of answers. And the question, if I distilled it down, is this. How does a person or a community know if they are oriented toward God-minded stuff or oriented away from God-minded stuff? Like, that's the real kind of foundational question of the chapter. And, and the reason the question is important is because, as we've learned in this letter of John, he has opponents. He has people that have left the church, but they're still kind of stirring up trouble. And they're claiming that they have this new knowledge, this understanding of the mysteries of grace, and everybody else just has to embrace their way. And so this break-off community is kind of showing an orientation in a dramatic direction. But then you have the remaining community that seeks to still follow John's teaching, and they're trying to live out what John has taught them because they go, no, that's the faithful way. So you have these two different orientations on how people are trying to supposedly act like Christians. And the challenge in this is that both groups, they're claiming Jesus. And both groups are claiming that they've been forgiven. And both groups claim they're standing for truth in some capacity. And that's what makes it so hard. But the difference is one group is very focused on what John would call anti-Christ-like thinking, right? And the other group is trying to focus on Christ-like thinking. And so John is stepping in in this chapter to answer the question, how do you know your orientation? How do you know for sure which way you're going and if you're going God's way? So today we're looking at verses 1 through 10. And that's the first answer. And the first answer at its core is basically, you know that you're going the right direction if you practice true righteousness. So when we're asking that question, am I really committed to God? Am I really thoughtful on the things of Christ? Am I really being led by the Spirit? That's that first thing you want to look at and say, okay, well then if I am, I'm going to be oriented toward practicing true righteousness. Then in two weeks when we're together in verses 11 to 24, we will see that it's all about producing deep love. So true righteousness this week, and in two weeks, deep love. Now here's why this is important in my estimation. I find in church life and Christian life in the United States, uh, there is this tendency with these two ideas to kind of err on the side of one or err on the side of uh, the other. So you have churches that are like, man, we're all about true righteousness, but sometimes at the cost of displaying deep love. And, and in fact, I've even shared in the series, like the church I trained in, that would mock churches that are too loving because they're so righteous, 
right? And that's a problem. But on the flip, there's this danger that says, you know what, we're so much about love, we just don't really think much about righteousness. We camp over here on the love thing, and we ditch the righteousness thing. The hardest thing is to take these two concepts and merge them together with equal priority, equal heart, equal passion, and yet that's where John is going to take us. That's what John is going to ask of us to be a people of love and righteousness. And the reason is because God in his perfection and purity is a God of both righteousness and love. And so with that, the reason we want to do this is because of the first thing in your notes this morning, if you're taking notes, God's kids are to be a chip off the old block. If God is loving and God is righteous and we're God's kids, we need to be the same thing. And so John has just dealt with the fact that there are some people in this community overall that are kind of showing anti-Christ-like ideals. And so he wants to remind us of, hey, don't be like an antichrist. Rather, be like Christ himself. Therefore, starting in verse 29 of chapter 2, actually, he says, Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. So two notes here really quick that I think are important for us to understand. First of all, when he talks about being righteous as Christ is right and righteous, uh, this is an Old Testament idea, right? So John's a good Jewish boy like we've talked about. He's drawing off of his heritage and history. And this word is a very particular and profound word as understood in the Old Testament. And, and what we have to understand about this today is we tend to look at that word and say, oh, to be righteous means that in my life, I have ethics that are done in such a way that before God, he sees me as doing right things between he and I, like privately in my heart and in my mind. And I go, yeah, that is a form of righteousness. But in the Old Testament idea that John is drawing off of, righteousness is something displayed to the community around you. It's not just you and God and that's all, but a truly righteous person is investing into their environment. They're doing things for the betterment of others. They're caring about others, not simply about just them and God, but how what God has done in them is to flow out to the people around them. So true righteousness is what I do to you and to you and to you and you do to me and we do to one another and we do to our community out and about in the world that we live. That's true righteousness. In fact, in Proverbs 11 we see this concept. It says, with his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. So godlessness, unrighteousness, destroys others, right? But by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. He says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, they, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessings of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, and a man of understanding remains silent. If you look at that passage really closely, what you see is that when the righteous are in play, the city is blessed. When the righteous are living out true rightness or justness, because the word righteousness and justice is the same word in Hebrew, when they're doing this, people are blessed. When we're doing this, there is unity in a community. There's peacemaking in a community. There's a sense of betterment for everybody around us. This is why we say life is better with Jesus. It's not just my life is better. I make other people's lives better. If I'm not making other people's lives better because of Jesus, I'm not doing the Jesus thing to the degree I should. So that's true righteousness. 
And so in this sense, this is how we want to be righteous. This is how we stand divided, right? We, we do things and we act in ways and we make sacrifices so that, again, the environment, our community, our city, whatever, is blessed for our presence. This is why one of our mottos as a church is that we want to do things for the good of the city. We don't simply do that to be nice or to be evangelistic. We do this because that's the plan of God. The whole plan starts off in, in Genesis 12 where he's like, I want to bless the nations through my people. And when you look at the charter of love in Leviticus, it's to love your neighbor, whether they're an insider or an outsider. That's how we change the world. And, and so we're to be righteous just as Jesus was right and righteous. And if you think about it, he did the same thing, right? Like he comes into the world, he comes into the human condition, and he's like, all right, I'm going to sow blessing among them. I'm going to make this investment that, that makes the human community reflect, refreshed and flourishes and is transformed and changed, and that's what it means to display true righteousness. And so this is the thing that John wants us to own, and he wants us to own it because it's the, it's the mark, not simply of being a Christian when we do righteous things, but it's the mark of being one of God's kids. Like, how do you know you're one of God's children? Oh, man, you want to do what he does. You want to, to live up to the family name and the potential that is there. And what I love about this idea, then, that we're children and we're children of God is it means, you know, we're not just adherents, converts, dogmatists. No, we're God's very kids. Thus John goes in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. And that's what we are. But the people who belong to this world, they don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. What I love about this is not only that we are God's kids, but it's telling us that's how God sees us. We tend to go, well, God sees us as adherents. God sees us as worshipers. God sees us as followers. And I go, yes. But more deeply, God looks at you and says, that's my daughter. That's my son. Those are my heirs. More than just, hey, these are people that adhere to a system. No, these are my kids that I love and I invest into. That's how we're children of God himself, right? He's imparting and expressing deep love for us and in us and through us and to us because we abide with him and he abides with us. Thus John continues. He says, dear friends, right, in light of the fact that we're God's kids, right? He says, we're already God's children. We, we know this, right? But he's not yet shown us what we are to be like when Christ appears. But we know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. So we're going to be so wed in relationship, we're going to be found in Christ's likeness completely and fully. He says, and all who have their eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Now again, this word pure, just like righteous, comes out of the Old Testament. Right, it goes back to the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And, and, and what it is is this idea that um, purity is about how we enter into the presence of God and enjoy the presence of God. So you go back to the Old Testament, right? So if somebody touched a dead body, for example, they were impure until they went through a ritual to become pure again. Why? So that they can go and worship in a pure way and enjoy that presence of God and have proximity to him. 
So in the same way, what John is kind of stacking up here is, hey, you're in, you're God's kid, but boy, when you really live righteous, man, you change the world. And when you really live pure, you enjoy the presence of God in powerful ways, which then helps you to be more righteous in the community. And the more you do that, the more you're going to strive for purity. And again, it just keeps cycling through because John loves the cycles. In fact, I love what John does throughout his letter. He stacks up ideas. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, all right, uh, we need to walk just as Jesus walked. And then in 3, 3 here, he's like, and, and be pure just as Jesus is pure. And as he said, also be righteous just as Jesus is righteous. And notice what he keeps tagging it back to. He doesn't say, uh, remember, walk as religion walks. Uh, be dogmatic as is dogmatism being pure or be righteous as leaders tell you to be righteous. He doesn't say anything. He always benchmarks it against Jesus. Walk as he did. Live as he did. Be pure as he was. Uh, be righteous like he was. It's always about Christ. Right? And the reason it's always about Christ is because of number two in your notes. Jesus came to help us grow into being awesome kids of God. Right? That's his mission. So in the same way that we know Jesus is God, we've talked about that, that that's been the debate in 1 John. Is he human? Is he God? Yes, he's both. But in the same way that Jesus is God, you know what Jesus also does in our lives? He plays the role of the ultimate big brother. That's what he does, right? It's like he steps in, and he's like, all right, I'm gonna teach you kids the ropes. I'm gonna show you what our dad wants. This is how we live, and this is how we don't live. Now, the only problem for Jesus, the challenge, is that every one of his siblings, us, are black sheep, right? We're the dysfunctional siblings because we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with rebellion. We all have problems. And so he's got a, a, a heavy lifting job to do to, to show us how to be the kind of kids that God wants us to be because we have a problem. But Jesus is the solution. So John first highlights the problem in verse 4. He says, everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. Now, we're all guilty of this one, right? Everybody is going to break God's law. But let's think about this for a minute. What is sin? If you think through this series, we've talked about, by definition, it means to miss the mark. The question we have to raise is, well, to miss it in what way? Right? You can talk about missing a bullseye all day long, but if you don't know what the bullseye is, we don't know exactly what we're missing. But when we couple this idea of sin and breaking the law together, what we actually begin to see that is in John's thinking, the sin, the bullseye that we're missing is an absence or a lack of love, right? So when we don't love, we're missing the mark, especially when you tether it to law. Like think about what Jesus said when it comes to the law. He gets quizzed one day by uh, some religious leaders, and they're like, hey, bro, what's the most important law of all the laws of God? And what's he say? Love, right? He's like, if you love God and love your neighbor, you've covered the bases. If you look at Paul, like in Romans 13 or Galatians 5, he says the same thing. He's like, when you love your neighbor, you fulfilled the entirety of the law. So the reality is when we fail to love, when we fail to exude love, then we're not actually hitting the target. We're, we're missing the target when we don't have love. So love is meant to be the deeper motivator in things. And I think this is important because sometimes when we think about obedience and disobedience and law and lawlessness, we tend to just kind of reduce it down to morals, 
Like if I'm just a good law-abiding citizen, I'm pleasing God. The reality is what God wants from us is to be love-displaying Christians. Loving God, loving neighbor, even loving enemy. So when you start to think about those practical things, right? Like, um, for example, let's say you decide you're going to sell a car, right? So you, you're going on the Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or whatever else, and, and you're like, you put it up for sale, and somebody comes to look at the car, and you know there's some stuff that is maybe a problem. And then they ask you, hey, is there anything you know about any maintenance issues or whatever else? At that moment, you might go, well, if I tell them the truth, then they may not buy it. So I just will hold back some stuff, and that way I can make some money, get rid of the car, be done with it, or whatever else. And you might think, ah, oh, you know, I'm probably not being very honest, but more deeply, what you're failing to do is love this neighbor that's buying this car. You don't love them enough to prevent them from being saddled with the problem. You don't love them enough to warn them in advance of what you might be getting. So technically, while you're, quote, breaking a law more deeply, you're failing to love. Or, for example, let's say you employ somebody that is an undocumented worker, and you're like, ah, oh, I can get them for a better deal because they're not being tracked, they don't pay taxes, nobody knows what they're doing, everything else. And so you kind of take advantage of them. At the deeper level, what we're failing to do is love this neighbor that's an outsider neighbor. Just as Leviticus said, hey, you love the foreigner around you just as much as you love the Israelite. So the problem is a lack of love. Or if you think, oh man, I want to enter into a relationship with somebody that's not my spouse, you might go, well, that's immoral, that's wrong, but more deeply, it's unloving. It doesn't love them, it really doesn't love you, it doesn't love your spouse, it doesn't love their spouse. See, this is why we don't want to just simply look at everything in terms of ethical violations. We want to go more deep and say, the core of the problem is an absence then of authentic, true love. In fact, I'll give a different example of this. Um, when my kids were growing up, uh, we always tried to have conversations about intimacy, sexuality, temptation, lust, all those kinds of things, pornography. All those things were kind of in the mix. And when we talked, for example, like on pornography, because both young men and young women are going to be tempted by those things. Can I tell you what I did not do with my kids? I didn't warn them about how it's perverse, how it's bad, how it's wrong, how it's lustful, how it's whatever. You know what I tried to really impart to them? It's a human dignity problem where we are not showing love to God or others if we go down this road, right? Because if you engage in that and you're watching that, you're, 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 you're not, for my kids, I'd say, you're not loving your future spouse by doing that. You're not loving those people who are depicting this. You're using them for your own gratification. So you're not showing love. You're showing take. You're not displaying dignity toward them. You're actually not concerned if they don't have dignity so you can be gratified. That's a problem. And I would always try to ground it back in, we need to be motivated by love. We don't want to take advantage of others for ourselves. And I think that is kind of the heart of what true love is all about. And so, to not act from love is not just simply sin and law-breaking, though it is, but, but more deeply, it's just saying, you know what, I don't have enough care and affection for God or for you or even my own well-being to do what is right. See, if we think, well, if just ethical, it's good enough for God, well, then the Pharisees were solid, because they were ethical, right? They, they, they professed all kinds of great things with their mouths. The problem was their heart was far from God. And so, again, the heart of what we are to do is to love, and to not love is to be lawlessness and to struggle with sin. 
The good news for us, though, is that Jesus came to help us with our problem, right? We all know that sin is lawlessness. John says that in verse 4. He says, but in verse 5, you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there's no sin in him. So, yes, we have a problem, but boy, Jesus, his, he's the solution. And here's what I dig about this, a couple of interesting notes to me. Um, first of all, in the ancient world, right? So, like, the Old Testament period kind of roll into the New Testament. Uh, the deities, the different professed gods, uh, they all would dole out judgment on sinful humans, right? So anytime the humans sinned against the gods, the gods would punish the humans for their sins. So that's not uncommon. It's in the Old Testament. It's in all these other different documented ideas of religious systems around the world and everything else. But here's what makes Jesus, Jesus altogether different, right? All the other gods said, humans have sinned. We must punish them. Jesus looks and says, humans have sinned. I hate sin so much. I'm going to step in and I'm going to deal with their problem. I'm going to take it on myself. I'm not going to just dole out the judgment. I will come and take the judgment. I will throw it on my shoulders. I will take their sins away from them, and I will drive them out of this world so that they can be rescued and renewed and changed and deployed and used in beautiful new ways, that they can love authentically and true, and they can be righteous in a community by bringing that love to the world. Like, that is what he does. And so literally, he's like, I'll go, I'll bear it, I'll take it, and I'll take it away, Right? He takes on our problem personally to take away our problem personally. The second thing I think is really cool here is that John grabs the image of the scapegoat again out of Leviticus. Right? He keeps going back to Leviticus a lot. So remember this, the first goat gives its life for the community, but the second goat takes on the sins of the community and it's released into the wilderness and it takes the sins away. Well, that's what John is talking about here with Jesus. He forgives our offenses, but he also removes our burdens, right? He's like, I take away your shame because I care so much for you. I take it on me to release you. And he can do this because John says he's sinless. He's a pure vessel who can remove our affliction and our problems. And so I see everything that John is saying here, and I'm like, man, this is inspiring, this is encouraging stuff. It's deep, but it's moving. Until we get to the next verse. And as we move into this next section, um, it's rough. I'll just warn you, right? Like, like, it's a section that has been a part of, of deep, rich, and sometimes perplexing theological discourse. Because where John goes is sort of jarring suddenly. So he says, hey, sin is lawlessness, but Jesus came to take away our sins, both in practice and in principle. Thus, he goes into the next verse in verse 6, and he says, and this is a literal translation of the Greek text as best as we can get it. He says, based on all of this, no one who lives in him sins. Everyone who sins has neither seen him nor really knows him. The one who commits sin belongs to the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the start. No one has been born of God, commits sin, for his very nature remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In the words of the great philosopher Scooby-Doo, Oh, Rappy! Right? Like, you read that, and you go, is that what I'm supposed to do? Is that, that what the expectation is? Like, just let those words sink in. Anybody who is truly born of God, anybody that truly knows Jesus doesn't sin, can't sin, won't sin. 
See, I don't know about you, but I read this and I go, that's not my reality at all. Like you come across this and it just pounds you. It's like a throat punch and it's an upper crust and a suplex. You know, I'm like, I'm just, I don't know what to do with this. And I don't know what to do with it, especially in light of the fact that back in chapter one, he said something completely opposite almost feeling. It almost contradicts it. In chapter one, verse eight, he says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. And then verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So do you see the problem? If I say, ah, oh, I don't have any sin, I'm wrong. But then by chapter three, but if I actually sin, I'm also wrong. Like, how do I win on this one, right? Maybe the secret is, I never say I don't sin, but as long as I don't sin, I'm fine as long as I don't say I don't sin. Confusing, right? So the question becomes, honestly, what do we, what do, we do with this? What do we do with these statements that are A, extreme, and B, sound contradictory, right? Well, I took my week to do some stuff, and I'll show you a picture of what I did a lot. I read a lot. So this is all the books I have on 1 John. Right, So I read through this, and here's what I found. Uh, there's not just one way to skin this weird textual cat, though I don't know why we would ever skin a cat. But aside from that, there's actually nine different ways you can skin this biblical cat right here. One for every life of the cat, apparently. That's what I kind of discovered. So there are nine different divergent ways that scholars try to look at this passage where it seems like John is being super extreme and they go, here's how we can answer it, especially in light of chapter one where he says, hey, don't say you don't sin, but in chapter three, you better not sin. Like, how do you reconcile? So of the three kind of popular ways to approach it, one is a grammatical solution, right? So they, they look at the word sin and they look at the tense of the original language, which is present tense, and they go, well, what John is talking about here is uh, true Christians don't habitually sin. They don't continually sin. And you're going to see in a couple of minutes here, uh, there are certain versions like the NASB, for example, or the New Living Translation that we use that will actually kind of nuance it and say, oh, it's continual, it's habitual, whatever. You know, like they use that terminology because they're kind of tapping into this idea that it must just be habitual sin that isn't our problem. That deal with this is if we carry that grammar rule throughout 1 John, pretty soon what we have is Jesus only dies for habitual sins, not individual single sins. And so the grammar problem, it kind of works, but it kind of breaks down at some point too. So it's not always the best solution. Others go, no, there's a theological solution. Theological solution is guys like John Wesley and the Methodists, they go, Christians can be perfect. So you can actually do this thing. You can reach this state. And if you've ever been a part of the Methodist tradition, it's called entire sanctification or perfectionism. You can do that. But again, not my experience. I've never done that. Some people say, well, this is at least what is potential. It's what's possible in the life of the Christian. You can be sinless in your life for some stretch of time. Maybe you don't get there, but at least it is the possibility of getting there. And that's kind of a second solution. The third solution is uh, it's just situational. In other words, John has a circumstance in mind. He's dealing with a group of people, and as he says these things, they're going to understand what he's getting at, but it's a little bit obscured to our modern eyes today to understand what he's driving at. Now, in that, there's like these nine total ideas kind of falling into those three basic categories, and all of those solutions have merits. I, I, I'm kind of going tweed jacket and, I don't know, some scholar for you this morning. 
so you understand that, you know, sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to wrestle. And sometimes in the wrestling, here's the worst part, there's no clear answer. And sometimes we make conclusions, but they're like pocked with holes, like Swiss cheese. There's like solid stuff there, and there's some stuff missing, and we do our best. And that's kind of the passage that we have before us this morning. So, here's my best Swiss cheese stab at this whole thing, all right? So you have two groups that are in conflict. One group is John's opponents. And John's opponents have this no-sin clause. It's very extreme. They're the ones that, back in chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, they're like, hey, we don't sin, we have no sin, because they kind of look and go, Jesus is so forgiving that he's forgiven me completely, so much so that, hey, if I go do reckless, stupid, foolish stuff, it's not even really sin. It's not even a problem. It's no big deal. And so because of that, John is responding with another extreme statement of, well, Christians don't sin, right? You all claim you have no sin, so he just goes to the other extreme and says, I'm going to say something radically on the other side. Christians don't sin. But here's the thing. He's using hyperbole again. He's making an extreme ultimate statement, not because he's trying to lean super hard in that statement as though that's what's achievable, but he's trying to make the statement to get our attention. And this isn't new to John, right? He's been doing it all the way through the book, right? Darkness versus light, Christ versus antichrist, truth versus lies, right? You know him or you know nothing about him. Like everything's been extreme for him. But I don't think he speaks extreme so that extreme is the answer. He speaks extreme so that from that we wrestle and we go, oh, the answer's more nuanced. And he borrows this from Jesus, right? Like when Jesus says, hey, if it causes you to sin, cut off your hands and pluck out your eyes. That's extreme, right? But the extreme is meant for us to go, oh, I should probably take my sin seriously. Not I should cut off my hands and pluck up my eyes by two o'clock today. But I should be aware of the dangers. And so, because I know this has been heady, I'm going to see if I can simplify it a little bit. I want you to picture this like a road, right? So the opponents are the Noah sin extreme. So John is the don't sin extreme right there, right? And both of these lanes, they look the same. And these phrases sound really familiar, right? Like, they sound really close. No and don't, right? But the reality is these roads are going in two very different directions. That's the bottom line. One's going one way, one's going the other. So kind of John's extreme is a yellow Jeep because that's God's make, God's model, and God's color, all right? I, I, didn't, I didn't do this. It's, it's, in, the, it's in first opinions. So, um, so and, 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 and it's going a certain direction. And then over here, you have a miscellaneous Chevy product, all right? So, and, and it's being driven by a cat, all right? So it's going a certain way. Now, here's the thing. On each of these, uh, they have some maneuverability within the lane. Uh, they can accelerate or decelerate within the lane, but they're clearly going opposite directions. That's the extreme, right? They're going opposite directions. One is southbound going downtown, and one is northbound going uptown. And I think that's the thing that John is ultimately doing in this whole thing, right? The directions are the extreme. And so with this, the difference is that the opponent's vision is that they see sin casually, 
They go, sin is not an issue to godliness, whatever. Sin isn't even a thing. Even when we do it, who cares? We're not doing it. It's God doesn't care. We don't care. We'll keep doing it. Where John's like, no, his version takes sin seriously, and it's an important issue to true godliness. Those are two different orientations of a radical nature. And, and the opponent version, what it's ultimately going to do is say, you know what? The more you do that, the more it invites more sin. Because the more you keep saying, sin isn't sin, the more you'll sin. And that's an extreme. But if you actually have a different version and say, sin is sin. I don't want to sin. I don't like sin. I don't want to keep falling into sin. It's going to take you more down a road where you pursue more godliness. And in that sense, they're two extremes. And so the fundamental question of what is your extreme comes into play. What is your orientation? That's what matters. In fact, if anything, I, I think John's acting like, like a, a coach that's trying to kind of, again, fire us up. It's like when I watch the Seahawks, when all 53 men are on the sideline, and they're all getting in there just before the game, and they're talking about all what they're going to do in that game, right? Like, we're going to go hard. We're going to give 110%. We're not going to give an inch. We're not going to quit. We're not going to feel pain. We're going to drive, drive, drive. Now, once you get in the game, you're going to give up an inch. You're not always going to be painless, right? But that extreme sense of we're giving 110% gives you the go juice of what you want to do. And I think that's exactly what John's doing. He's like, man, real Christians, we don't want to do this. We don't give into this. We don't quit. We don't stop. We don't fail. We keep moving, I think that's the heart that he is seeking to exude here. And so I think his meta point ultimately is number three in your notes. Based on Jesus' mission, live like God's kids and not like the devil's spawn. Right? It's extreme, but he talks in extremes. And so rolling back to verse six, he says, no one who remains in him sins. And it says continually in the NASB. I put this here again, just so you understand. When you read the NASB, NASB for example, that continually is in italics, what that is marking is they're admitting, they're adding that word to try to make sense theologically because they've landed on a certain way of looking at this. And they're just acknowledging it. It's kind of cool. Like, hey, we've added this to try to make sense of it, but there's different ways to make sense of it. So, no one who reigns in him sins continually, and no one who sins continually has seen him or know him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. If sin means to miss the mark of love, the devil loves that. He loves that. And if we are to live righteously and purely, it means we want to have love and action. Because what's the devil want to do in this world? Well, he wants to sow division and discord and hate. But it says in verse 8, the Son of God has come to destroy the works of the devil. Right? So he wants to undo all of those things. In John 10.10, we see his mission. The thief's purpose is to kill and steal and to destroy. Jesus says, but my purpose is to give a rich and satisfying life. The devil wants to sow decay. Jesus wants to bring flourishing Thus, to be in league with the devil is to be oriented toward things that are unloving and bring decay, but to be oriented toward the things of Christ is to bring life and love and joy to the world around us. Thus, verse 9. Those who have been born of God's family do not make a practice, again, in italics, admitting that it's been added there by them for that purpose, but he's saying it. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are God's children. 
Again, I don't think this is so much about absolute statements as it is about kind of like a deep plea. Like, come on. We're God's kids. Why would we want to sin? Why would we make a habit of doing that? Why wouldn't we want to just live up to our full potential? And I think John knows, he's like saying to us, like, we get it. Sin isn't even, even really fun in the end anyway. It drains you. It depletes you. It hurts the people around you. It doesn't pay off. You don't feel more full or complete for doing it. You feel more empty and alone and isolated when it happens. Why would we want to go down that road? So he has strong words, but they're meant to motivate deep hearts. Thus in verse 10. He says, so now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Again, strong words, left intention. But the bottom line is that God's kids desire God's stuff. And they want to do things in God's ways, tangibly and practically, right? And so when we're living righteously, we care for those around us. When we love the believers, we're showing the world that we, in fact, follow Jesus, and we are his disciples. Now, this idea of loving one another we'll dig into in two weeks' time. But I want to leave with just a couple of questions for us to wrestle with as individuals. The first is this. How can you today, as you leave this place and go out into the community or whatever else, how can you display the things that John is pushing for in this passage today. And then with that, how can you be a positive force to show how life is better with Jesus? Because we are saved to be a righteous people in this world. Uh, We are rescued to be God's kids, to display a deep sense of love and loyalty, not because we're going to be perfect, but because we desire to be everything he wants us to be because he's given everything for us. Let's go ahead and pray together right now. Jesus, today, we get to come before you in communion. And and I pray that as we do, um, we are drawn to you, we are drawn to what you desire of us, that, again, we know that we're not going to be perfect, but you set this bar not for our bad, but for our good, not to discourage us, but to motivate us. And instead of us looking going, here's all the ways that I fail, I, I, I pray that instead we will think of all the ways you've succeeded for us and therefore we have what we need to succeed in and through you. And so as we reflect on your body broken, your blood shed to show us a covenant of love, I pray that we are drawn into a deeper motivation for what it is you have for us. And so, Jesus, I thank you that we get to reflect on you today. I thank you that we get to partake in your sacrifice for us. And I thank you that you loved us so much you did this. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen.